praise the Lord, He paid it all. I'm going to ask you to go to the Lord with me in prayer this morning as we begin our time in God's Word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are truly grateful to You that You have blessed us with Your Word, that it is the lamp to our feet and light to our path, that through it and it alone we have the true revelation of Yourself, of Jesus Christ, the explanation of our own condition apart from You, our condition with You, the knowledge especially, Lord, and above all, of You and Christ and Your work in all creation. Thank You. Bless us this morning in our time in Your Word. We ask that Your Word would enrich us for Christ's cause, for Your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles with me this morning to the book of John and there to the 10th chapter, John chapter 10. John 10. And I'm going to ask you to move down in this text with me to one specific verse. John 10 and there to verse 10. John 10, 10. I still hear some pages turning, so I'll give you a moment to get there. John 10, 10. John 10, verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. A very simple, straightforward, powerful verse. A statement from our Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, I want to spend some time looking at the significance of this verse, especially with respect to that little phrase, abundant life or life and have it abundantly. We'll focus our attention on the latter half of it. There are two parts to it, obviously. He defines clearly the uh, intent of the thief and who or what is the thief? Well, we ultimately know that the thief would be the devil in one sense, but at the same time, he has many, many apostles, if you will. He has many individuals in his uh, entourage. He has many, as Paul described them, ambassadors. And Jesus said, ultimately, of all of them, that they come for this reason, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And then he went on in that text, and he said, I came, I came, that they may have life and have it abundantly, abundantly. Now, whenever we begin this text, and I'm going to share with you, we'll be looking at several other verses in the New Testament to help us understand what life means here in this verse. And we need to do that because um, the Bible speaks to that specifically, not only here, but elsewhere in the New Testament. So I'll be giving you many other verses, and at the same time, that we look at what this life means that Christ is talking about here, we're also going to see what it doesn't mean. Very clearly what it doesn't mean. It's important that we look at multiple other texts. We always, whenever we come to the Bible, we need to read it first and understand the verses in their immediate context. 
and then in the context of the whole. As we know, we have 66 books before us, handwritten by multiple individuals, but all authored by one, and that is God Himself. And with a single author, and that author being God, in whom there is no variableness nor shadow of turning, we know that this word will be absolutely true. There will be no contradictions in it. There will be no uh, errors in it because it comes from the one who is perfect. And so we can, in the proper context, look at other verses to help us understand what's going on before us here. But first, I want you to acknowledge that whenever Jesus says, I came that they may have life, he is talking very specifically with that pronoun they about his sheep. His sheep. I came, he says, that they and the they are his sheep. Notice as you move down in the text, he says in verse 16, I have other sheep. And again, I have other sheep. Other sheep that he possesses. His sheep, those who consist of individuals from every tribe and tongue and nation, he possesses them. They've been given to him by the Father, according to John chapter 6. You can make a note of that and read that at another time. He said there, all that the Father gives me will come to me. So coming to the Son is contingent upon having been given to the Son by the Father, according to John chapter 6. Jesus was explicit there in John 6 because he went on to say that no one can come to him unless it has been given to him by the Father. And notice as you move down in this text to verse 26. He says, But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. So there are other sheep in the world that exist out there, but they don't, they don't belong to Christ. They're not His sheep. They're not His sheep. It's very specifically His sheep that He is referring to. Whenever He says, I have come that they may have Life. Take a look back at the text with me. And have it abundantly. This particular Greek word translated here, life, is actually the word we get our English word zoo from. The Greek is zoe, and we get the English word zoo from this. But we need to be careful there. Because when we know down at the zoo, we go there and we see all kinds of life. All kinds of species of life. Just because it's translated, or excuse me, not translated, but um, uh, used in the English to speak to life in general, doesn't necessarily mean that it's the same thing right here. As a matter of fact, let's examine first what this life that Christ is referring to, that He's bringing, that is abundant, that they can have abundantly. Let's examine first what it does not refer to. First, it does not merely pertain to the principle of life or being alive itself. Because... They already have that. It's already possessed. The individuals to whom Christ was speaking, they were alive. They possess life. 
So it's not merely referring to the principal life itself. The verse in its context, as we'll see, presupposes the life that Christ is referring to is something that is not already possessed by the sheep and is dependent upon Him to come. Secondly, whenever he refers about this life here and having it more abundantly, he's really not even referring to eternal life in general. All people, all sheep, whether they belong to Jesus Christ or they do not, and clearly we know there are sheep that do not belong to Christ because he said it here, didn't he? Look again at verse 26. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. He went on in verse 28, excuse me, that was 26, and now he went on in 27 to say, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So not all the sheep follow Christ, but we know this, all sheep, all sheep, whether they belong to Christ or do not belong to Christ, they all possess eternal life. In other words, people, we all will live forever. That's a biblical truth. It's not a matter of just pure eternal life that is in view here. The Bible tells us that there are those who will be cast into the lake of fire in which they will endure suffering for eternity. That lake burns forever and ever. They will be cast in there. They have eternal life. They will be raised up according to Revelation 20. And in that second resurrection, they will be put into a state of second death. The last death. The lake of fire that burns forever and ever. And just a parenthetical note there. Whenever someone sins against God who is eternal, the only just penalty for them is to suffer the consequences of that sin for eternity. So, whenever Christ says, I've come that they might have or may have life, and that, or have it more abundantly, He's not talking about the principle of life in general itself. He's not talking about eternal life. Thirdly, it could not pertain merely to practical or material abundance. You know, we live in an environment today, and sadly, especially even among so-called evangelicals, there are those that believe that Christ has come to give us what they call the abundant life. And whenever they define abundant life in this verse, they're talking about material prosperity. They're talking about material prosperity. We refer to them generally as the health and wealth preachers, teachers, groups, whatever you want to refer to it. That cannot be what Jesus is referring to here either, because quite clearly there were individuals among the people of that day, just like they are today, that they possessed material abundance without Jesus Christ. There were those that were right here at that moment, standing and listening to Him, that were prosperous with regard to material abundance or practical possessions. Their life consisted of much of those things, and Jesus wasn't telling them that I've come so that you could have more of that. No, they already had it. It was theirs. So, what is this life that he's talking about here? First of all, let's acknowledge something. 
I've already alluded to it. It's here, obviously, in the text, not necessarily stated explicitly, but it's clear whenever he said, I have come that they may have life and that abundantly, that the text is presupposing they do not already possess it. You don't have it. I've come to give it to you. I've come to give it to the sheep. I've come that they may have life. This life, and we'll define it shortly, but whatever it is, it is something that they do not currently have. The Bible speaks to that in other places. Ephesians chapter 2, I'll ask you to turn there with me, if you will. Ephesians chapter 2, and look to verse 1. This is a description of believers before they had this life. It's a good description because before you have life, the only other thing that you could have is, well, you're dead with respect to this life. If you don't have life, you're dead. And the Bible tells us clearly here with respect to this life that is in view, Christ, or the Bible says in Ephesians 2.1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Move down in the same chapter to verse 5. Even when you were dead in, even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So formerly, they were dead. It's a sense of being dead spiritually. Look over to chapter 4 of Ephesians, verse 18. Speaking of the Gentiles who were unsaved, he says in verse 18 that they were darkened in their understanding. The text says, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of their heart. Notice, they were excluded from the life of God. And that little phrase is really going to make much more sense later on. Excluded from the life of God. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, also speaks of the former condition as one of being dead. In the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2, the Bible tells us that our sins have separated us from God. It's the sins of people that have separated them from God. And consequently, being separate from God is being separated from life, because life is in God. Move over to chapter 2 of Ephesians while you're there to verse 12. Notice he says here, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. The very moment sin entered the world, death came with it. You remember in the Old Testament, whenever God created Adam, He gave him a command. He said he could eat from the trees of the from the fruit of the trees of the garden, but He gave him specific instruction with the fruit of one tree. He said, "But of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, you shall not eat from it." He said, "For in the day that you eat thereof, or from it, you will surely." die. You will be cut off from the life that you have now. Now God's words were very succinct. In the day that you eat thereof, you will surely die. 
And whenever Adam ate of that fruit, and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they died. The Bible tells us again in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, that a sin entered the world through one man, that's Adam, and death by sin. Death by sin. The sin, partaking of the fruit, breaking of the command of God. And with it came death. Now some look at that and they scratch their head and they say, well, Adam didn't die that day. No, he didn't. He lived several hundred years on after that. But in one sense, yes, he did die. He lost this life that we're talking about right here in John chapter 10, verse 10. That life was lost. And because that life was lost, and as a result of the sin, eventually physical death came. Why do people die? Some people say, well, they get sick. They get old. Their body wears out. They get hit by a car. They fall. They have an accident. Whatever the case may be. All of those things are merely instrumental means, but the end result is death. Physical death. The ultimate cause is one thing. It's sin. The wages, the Bible says, of sin is death. That's always the way it pays off. It never pays off in anything else. Ultimately, it pays off in one thing, and that's death. The fact that Jesus said he came so that his sheep may have life presupposes that his sheep possessing this life that he's bringing to them or has come so that they might have is contingent clearly, he says in this text, upon his coming. As we'll see, it is contingent ultimately on his death. Look with me again at John 10. Immediately after he said that he came that they may have life and that abundantly, notice what he said in verse 11. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The good shepherd does what? He lays down his life for the sheep. Look at, again in verse 15. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Look again at verse 17. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. As you go through this chapter, you begin to see that there is an intimate link between Christ bringing the life to a sheep and His death. And we know elsewhere from Scripture that our eternal life with God and knowing Him is contingent upon that very truth, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's get to the basic definition of this word, life, then, and having it more abundantly. And to do that, we're going to let Christ Himself give us the definition. So turn from here to John 17. And as you get this definition, all of a sudden, many of these other verses we have examined this morning began to make sense to us. John 17. In John 17, Jesus is having a conversation with the Father. Actually, He is, as we know, He's praying. Look at verse 1. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up His eyes to heaven, He said, Father... The hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. So we see immediately that eternal life is in view. 
But as I mentioned, it's not merely eternal life in the sense of living forever, because all people do live forever, either in heaven ultimately or in hell ultimately. But they all live forever. We are eternal beings, not in the exact sense that God was. We had a beginning. That beginning started here at conception, period. Wasn't before that? It started here. The Bible is very clear about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 46. That which was first was not um, spiritual, but that which was natural is first. Our lives started here when God created us in the womb at the point of conception. And from there, we continue on ultimately to either be in heaven or hell. So notice what Christ's words were here again as He prayed. He may give them eternal life. And now He gives us the definition. Very short, very sink, but powerful. Verse 3, This is eternal life, that they may know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life, in the sense that it is defined here, in the sense that Jesus meant it in John chapter 10, is summed up in two words. Knowing God. This isn't knowing about God. It's not having the knowledge that God exists. It's knowing Him in the sense of a right relationship being in existence with Him. It is the opposite of being against Him. It is being with Him. It's knowing Him, and the Greek word comes from a word that means to know someone or something intimately. To know Him. You see, whenever Adam died, that spiritual death that he incurred was the ending of that intimate relationship he had with God in the garden, being in a right relation with Him. It ended. Now, Adam certainly and clearly knew God in the sense of his existence, that he was real, that he was there, that um, he was the Creator. He knew all about God in many respects more than any one of us in here have naturally. As a matter of fact, Adam knew God so clearly that he and Eve both recognized the voice of God as he was in the garden. You know, whenever you are in a crowd of people and you hear voices, you're able, if you know individuals in that crowd, to discern their voices because you have a higher knowledge of those individuals. Adam recognized God's voice in the garden, but he did not know Him any longer in that intimate sense. That was severed when sin entered. God called it death. Death, beloved, is not merely cessation. It's alienation. It's separation. Separated from God. Whenever you die physically, what happens? Your soul separates from your body. It's a separation. Whenever Adam died there in the garden and Eve died, they were separated from God. They were alienated from Him. Sin severed that relationship. God was holy. Adam became sinful. Eve became sinful. They formerly knew God. Then they did not have that relationship with Him any longer. Sin severed it. It was not a right relationship. There was something between them. God again defined that in Isaiah 59, as we already referred to. Our sins have separated us from Him. 
It's our sins that have alienated us from Him. The reality of it, the presence of it. Notice back in John with me for a moment, chapter 5. Eternal life is knowing the Father, it is knowing the Son. As we saw there in John 17, 1 through 3. I'm going to ask you to go over to John chapter 5 with me, down to verse 26. John 5 and 26. For just as the Father has life in Himself, even so He gave to the Son also to have life in Himself. Remember how eternal life is defined there in John 17? Knowing the Father, knowing the Son. Why is that eternal life? Because the life is in them. They have the life. This life is bound up in Jesus Christ insofar as you and I are concerned. It's bound up in Him. As a matter of fact, so much of it is bound up in Him that Jesus Christ Himself is referred to and refers to Himself as life. The life. We're familiar with John 14, verse 6. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life, Jesus said. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, He says, comes to the Father but through Me. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 11, the Bible says the life, eternal life, is in the Son. It is in the Son. According to 1 John chapter 1 and verse 2, the Bible teaches us that this life was manifested to us. How so? It's manifested in the Son. Whenever you see Christ in the pages of Scripture, when you see Him by faith, you are seeing that life. It's a manifestation of it. He had a right relationship with God. He was God in the flesh and is. As a matter of fact, not only is this life bound up in Christ, but the very message of the Gospel is a message of this life. That gospel was preached so clearly and so succinctly in connection with life that its persecutors in New Testament times defined the very message of the gospel as life. Look at John or Acts with me, chapter 5 and verse 20. When you look at Acts 5, you're turning to a time after the ascension into heaven of the Lord Jesus Christ, the time of the early church after it had begun there at Pentecost. And you're looking at a period of time after Peter had been preaching a few times and the disciples were going out and communicating the gospel. And now the enemies have heard this message and move with me to verse 17 for a moment. But the high priest rose up, John, or Acts 5.17, along with all his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. Notice this. This is the high priest of the day. He's a very religious man. Now he's ignorant in many respects of truth, but he's very religious. How do we know he's ignorant? Well, he was at one point there was one of the high priests was a Sadducee, and the Sadducees deny the resurrection. That's ignorance right there. But notice how they defined this message. They were jealous. They laid hands on all the apostles and put them in public jail, a public jail. Verse 19. But during the night an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison, and taking them out, he said, Go and stand and speak to the people, excuse me, yes, speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. 
And actually, it was the angel here, as you can see, that defined the message as life. His, the message of life, the persecutors of the message of cross, they heard that message of life. They heard of the resurrection and they imprisoned the pro proclaimers of that message. The angel defined it here. The whole message of this life. Wasn't talking about the message of this life that you have here and now that you're living. He's talking about the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the individuals who hear, heard that clear, succinct message of life rejected it. Multiple times you will see in the New Testament that individuals were willing to put up with and listen to the gospel, those who were religious, until they got to the point of talking about, for example, a resurrection. And that was the case here with the Sadducees who denied the resurrection. They were against the life. How do you become a partaker of this life? Well, the answer is simple. You must believe in Jesus Christ. You must believe in Him. Look at John chapter 3 with me. A text that you're familiar with. John 3. And verse 15. Again, linking Christ's death. And we see that in verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So that whoever believes will in Him have eternal life. You must believe in Christ. For God so loved the world, the text says in verse 16, that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. To possess this eternal life requires one to believe in Christ. But to believe in Him and to believe and possess that eternal life you're going to have to have a knowledge of why you even need it. Why do you need eternal life? You're going to live forever anyway, right? Everyone will. You need eternal life as spoken of here because of the reality of sin separating an individual from God. So to really believe in Christ, you must first have a significant awareness of your alienation from God and the gravity of your sin and your enmity against Him. You see, if you just come to this passage, and many people do, oh, I believe in Jesus, I get to live forever. Some people come to this passage and they actually interpret it. Many, even in evangelical circles, you perhaps have heard some of them say this. Oh, I believe in Jesus Christ and I have eternal life, so I can go out here and I do anything I want to. I can live like the devil because I've already believed and I'm going to be in heaven anyway. I have the abundant life. That's not scriptural. That's not biblical truth. The person who's believed in Christ has believed in Him because first and foremost, they became aware of the reality of the presence of sin and the alienation of that sin in their lives from God. So they have no, whenever it comes back and around to that, once they are saved, they do not regard sin in the same way any longer. They regard it as something that they want to flee from, not flee to. Praise the Lord, yes. It's a change of nature. If you're still trying to find a way to sin, you got a problem. There's an alienation from God that's still there. 
So those who truly come and truly believe in Jesus Christ have truly come to a reality of realization that they, apart from God, were spiritually dead in their trespasses and sins. That they were slaves to sin and needed deliverance because they didn't know God. Because they were not right with Him. Because their sins were against His holiness. And the only way to be reconciled to Him is through His mediator, Jesus Christ. Period. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Through me. 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, we're familiar with them. The life is in the Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Oh, they'll live forever, but it'll be in hell. It'll be under the punishment of God's wrath for their sin against Him. Finally, this morning, another truth about this life. It will extend to a bodily resurrection. Praise the Lord. There will be a point in time when God's people who know Christ will have a resurrected body. Now, there's a resurrection for the lost as well, a resurrection to damnation and suffering and torment and eternal trial, according to Revelation 20, and many other texts. But for those who are the sheep of Christ, those for whom He gave His life, which equates to those who believe in Him, who call on Him, they will be resurrected to life. To, to life. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 goes into detail about that resurrection. It is a bodily resurrection. It's mentioned multiple other places in the New Testament. Let me give you a couple others. John chapter 5, while we're here in uh, John, or yeah, John chapter 5, look down in the text with me to verse 25. John 5, 25, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. That's the spiritual life. Those who are dead, who hear, live. That's the beginning of that eternal life for the sheep of Jesus Christ insofar as their actual experience of it. They will hear, and you have to ask the question at this particular point, how do the dead hear? How do they hear? You go out to any cemetery, you can make all kinds of noises. We live about a block from one. And I've yet to see anyone in that cemetery that's a resident there respond to any conversation or any noise. There have been loud noises around there enough, I would say, on occasion to wake the dead. But nothing ever happens over there. It's dead. It's the place of the dead. You can speak all you want to them. They cannot hear. They will not respond. Impossible. So how do the dead hear? Well, the answer is simple. God gives them a new nature to hear. He opens up their hearing. Remember what Jesus said in John 10? My sheep hear my voice. 
I know them and they follow me. God gives them a new nature. And how do they respond? They respond by faith. And so He makes it clear here. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Son has life in Himself, even so He gave to the Son, or excuse me, just as the Father has life in Himself, even so He gave to the Son also to have life in Himself. And He gave Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and will come forth those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Now some will say, and they wrongly conclude again because they don't understand the importance of interpreting Scripture in the light of Scripture, that if you do good deeds, that verse proves that you get to go to heaven. Or works equals earning of salvation. That is not what the text means. Jesus is simply stating a fact. And how do you define a good deed? Those are the deeds that are done as a result of possessing the life. Those are the deeds that grow out of the life. They are deeds that are done and performed not on your terms or my terms, but on God's terms. And they result from having been given a new life. And they have a resurrection. And notice, as Jesus said here, of life. Of life. The other is a resurrection to judgment. So the biblical exhortation then is to clearly believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And those who do that truly have an awareness of their sinfulness before God. There are many other things that we could look at with respect to this this morning. I hope at this particular point, that you've seen the importance, though, of biblically defining, in this case, life, and doing that as a result of comparing Scripture with Scripture. We must do the same thing with regard to Jesus Himself. Who is He? What has He done? What did He accomplish? The Bible says it's necessary to believe that He is the Son of God. At the same time, it communicates the fact to us that Jesus Christ is God. Whenever you take John 1, 1 and compare it to John 1, 14, the Word was God, and in verse 14, the Word became flesh. He was God. He became flesh. He is God in the flesh. That's why He is referred to as Emmanuel. God with us. God with us. He is God. He is the Son of God in the sense that they share the exact same nature. If you believe in a wrong Christ, then you've missed the warning that Jesus gave in Matthew chapter 24, that false Christ would come. And if a person is believing and following a false Christ, they're listening to the false Christ. They don't hear the voice of the true Christ, the Son of God. My sheep, Jesus said, hear my voice. They hear my voice. And they follow Him. So we have to define the Father. We have to define the Son. We have to define what salvation means. In the light of Scripture, all of these things are vital. And those definitions must be consistent from Genesis to Revelation with the Word of God. Otherwise, we have no sound reason for claiming the life. I'm going to ask you to stand this morning as we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper and go to the Lord with me once again in prayer. Father in heaven, thank You 
for eternal life. That the eternal life that is possessed by the sheep of Jesus Christ is knowing you, knowing Him, being made right with you through Him, through His death, having paid for the sins of those for whom He died, that we might be reconciled to you. Thank you. Thank you for the simplicity of that truth that there is life in no other but in Jesus Christ alone. That eternal life and that which is eternal life from the perspective of all believers is an abundant life because we are right with you and we'll be with you in that right relationship. Thank you for the abundance of it, the overwhelming power of it. I pray that you would bless us this morning with wisdom and discernment, that we would partake of this Lord's Supper in such a way that honors Christ as recipients of those things you have promised in Him. In Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, and Nick has come, so we will uh, prepare for our Lord's Supper. I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bible, if you would, this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians 11. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is referring to the event of the upper room. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. He started that text as he wrote to the church at Corinth, and he said there, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. Notice what Paul said here. He said, and look at it clearly, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. Paul got the message of the Lord's Supper and that experience the disciples had with Christ in that upper room from Jesus Himself. Whenever Paul wrote to the churches of Galatia, he stated clearly that he did not receive the Gospel from men. He received it from the Lord Himself. The message that Paul preached was a message that Christ gave him directly. So he said, as Christ communicated to him the events in that upper room, he said, I've communicated it to you. And then he recounted it to the church at Corinth here. In the very night in which he was betrayed, and you remember as that Lord's Supper took place as recorded in John chapter 13, the Bible teaches us that the disciples were gathered together there in the upper room. Satan had already, according to that chapter, put it into the heart of Judas to betray Christ. And then long about the time of the ending of that Passover meal that they had gathered there to celebrate, the Bible tells us succinctly that Satan actually entered into Judas. You can find this event in John 13. And what did he do after Satan entered him? He went out to betray Christ. So in the night he was betrayed, Christ took the bread. And he took the drink. And he instituted this Lord's Supper. Take a look at the text. He, as quoted by Paul here, said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
Dear Father, thank you for everything you do, Father, especially the gift of Jesus Christ who died on the cross and shed his blood for our sins, Lord. We pray that you also for our eternity life and Lord, we also pray that you bless this communion in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. The Bible went on, goes on and it says, In the same way he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Through the death of Christ, his blood being poured out on the cross, His life physically given up there purchased the sheep for God. He did that with His life. His life so that His sheep could have life. The Bible says this, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Jesus said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. He mentioned the new covenant there. One of the interesting elements of the new covenant ties right into what we have looked at this morning. In description of that covenant in Hebrews chapter 8, God says, And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizens saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them. They will all know him. They will all, those who are true recipients of the death of Christ, will know him because they are right with him. In the same way he took the cup, also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. What a praise and what a blessing. And for participating in the Lord's Supper, that's exactly what we're doing. We're proclaiming the reality of His sacrifice until He returns. And He is coming again. We need to be looking for Him, watching for Him, waiting expectantly for Him. We're living in a day and an age when the, the evidence of the words that He Himself proclaimed to us, perhaps more than any other time in the history of this world since His ascension, that evidence is evident all around us. What a praise, what a blessing that is. He is coming. Stand with me if you would. Let's close this morning in prayer and we'll be dismissed. Actually, let me grab the hymnal here and we'll close in our final hymn. 454, My faith has found 
a resting place. 454. We will be dismissed after our hymn.